morning. Welcome to St. James Christian Church. We're glad that you're here. If you're visiting with us, we'd love for you to fill out a visitor card. If you're checking us out online, there's a visitor card on our website. We'd love for you to go and fill that out. Let us know that you were watching. Well, we are winding down our series in, uh, in Colossians. Just got this week and next week left. Paul has been teaching us about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that supremacy that we find combated in competition with the deceptive philosophies of this world. Truth, wisdom, and the reality of God find themselves at odds, not just with any old deception, but really in our present world, in our present culture, more than anything else, the supremacy of God finds itself at odds with the self, with us, with me. Culture around us has in every way elevated the self as God. We have been told that we can look within, and by looking within, we will know who we are, we will know truth, we will discover righteousness, we will find a meaningful and virtuous existence simply by looking to our own hearts. What you feel to be true in this culture easily overrides the obvious realities of your existence. Perhaps today, the deceptive philosophy that is undergirding all of the others is this, that self-image and expression are the foundation of human fulfillment. That we have these identities which we have derived from how we feel about things and from our own uh, perceptions and experiences. We have these identities that we have discovered and we must express. There is no higher purpose, according to the world around us, than to be yourself as you have imagined yourself. And of course, to follow your dreams. You should always follow your dreams. If others enter into this equation, they are there primarily because they have an impact on myself, on me. It's a question of how others participate in this journey with me. Do they meet my needs? Do they meet my expectations? Do they validate my chosen and presented identity? We rarely dream of, of things that don't involve the validation of other people. You know that I enjoy these uh, talent shows on television and watching The Voice. Again, not a very good season, those of you who follow along. But I'm enjo I, I enjoy this, but, um, but all these young people, they get on there and say, this is my dream, this is my dream. You ever notice that it's nobody's dream to simply make art, right? Nobody says, I just want to make beautiful music. No, I want to make beautiful music, and I want the world to recognize it as beautiful music. I want to be validated. I want people to tell me that I'm important and that I'm valuable. 
So others enter into this very self-centered vision of my existence because they have the potential to validate me. And of course, in today's society, if we don't validate you based on whatever uh, activity or identity you've chosen, then we're the bad guys. How evil, how mean. The truth is that our obsession with self-perception has created a deep narcissism in our culture. You know who Narcissus is? Narcissus is this uh, Greek character. He's a hunter. He was known for his beauty. And it's said in the myth that Narcissus sees his own reflection in a pool of water and so falls in love with his own reflection that he's unable to tear himself away. And he becomes stuck there for the rest of his days and eventually uh, turns into a flower that we now name after him. Our culture has become so enamored of its own reflection, of its own image, of its own self-identity that it is caught up and unable to tear itself away. Our culture has us looking to ourselves for wisdom and truth, so much so that we regard reality as relative. You can have your truth and I'll have mine. There is no universal, because to have a universal would deny that your truth or my truth is still our truth. And truth is defined not by something exterior to ourselves, not by something greater than ourselves. Truth is actually defined by our self. Goodness and morality become a function of simply being true to myself as I have perceived myself, and to the extent that I'm able, allowing others to be true to themselves as they have perceived themselves. There is no higher moral function, no higher moral cause than this. But just as Narcissus, we have this singular focus on ourselves, on our feelings, and our experiences, and it is ultimately self-destructive. Because what if we're really, what, if, what are we really saying? If I, as I have perceived myself, through my feelings and my experiences, can define what is good, can define what is righteous, then what I'm really saying is I am God. And there are plenty of voices in the culture, and sadly, not a few voices in today's church, who will gladly echo for us this apostasy that we are God. That we, within us, have the capacity to define what is true and good and right. And so I come to this passage Today's passage in Colossians chapter 4, starting with verse 2, Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, 
seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, this is Paul's letter to the Colossian church, a letter that is all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so it is no surprise that in a letter about the supremacy of Jesus, there is this call to us to remove the focus from ourselves and put it on Christ and then because of our focus on Christ, to put that focus then on others. Paul tells us to focus on Jesus, to pray for the Lord to act, to watch expectantly for him to act, and then to be grateful, thankful when we see him act. This is the source of truth. This is the source of our hope. This is the source of our purpose, our identity, our expression. In fact, Paul says, pray for my mission in the gospel and be conscious of your own mission in the gospel. Why? Because ultimately, Ultimately, the greatest need of all humanity is not to find its identity and express it. The greatest need of humanity is not even to be true to yourself. The greatest need of all humanity, every last one of us, no one accepted, the greatest need is reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. That's at the top of the list. Everything else is, is potatoes. That's the meat. Reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. Remember back in the Bill Clinton days, the campaign slogan, it's the economy, stupid. You remember that? We kind of need a campaign slogan in the church today. It's Jesus, stupid. That's what this is all about. That's what it comes down to. This is what Paul is saying. All these things, all these concerns, all these other facets of life, everything that you're involved in, everything gets better. Everything works out better. Everything is more right when Jesus is first. Simple as that. If you understand this truth for yourself, if you understand that the most important thing for you to have the fulfilling life that you desire, the most important thing for you to be complete, to have peace, to be whole, the most important thing for you is to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Then clearly, second on the list is that everybody you know would enjoy reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. And yet we come up against another deceptive philosophy that says that the relevance of the church is measured by self-satisfaction. What do I get out of it? What's in it for me? How does it serve me? How does it meet my perceived needs? How does it match my expectations? How does the church make me feel? Since my feelings are treated in this culture as being prophetic and authoritative, naturally, how the church makes me feel is one of our primary questions about how we determine whether or not the church is relevant today. Do I enjoy the worship? 
do I like the preacher? Do I like what the preacher has to say? Do they have the right programs? Do they follow the right politics? Do they maintain all the right traditions? Young people in our culture today go out and experience the megachurch, and they expect every church to have all the programming, all the bells and whistles, all the endless uh, light shows and smoke, smoke machines and uh, repetitive songs that go on for 16 minutes apiece. They come through our doors expecting this. Older Christians often have an experience of the traditional church. They come through our doors expecting us to sing hymns and do all the things that we've traditionally done. Generally speaking, although we seek moral justifications for these positions, the reality is none of this is really based on our view of Scripture. It's based on our view of experience and, and perception and 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 expectation, and assumption. It's based on us. And so, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, a place where there were apparently endless battles, battles raging over worship, battles raging over the meaning of salvation, battles raging over the meaning of grace. And what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 2 and 2? For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What is Paul saying? He's saying, when I was with you, you, you were foolish and immature. And you had a tendency to lose the bead, to lose track. And so here's what I did. Here's how I answered that problem. Rather than getting caught up in all of your expectations, all of your assumptions, all of your broken theology, and all of your understanding based on how you feel and what you've experienced and what you think, he says, I resolve to know one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the core. That's the foundation. If there is a foundation for all that we were meant to be in this life and the next, it is our relationship with Jesus Christ. The truth is, the relevance of the church is measured by her commitment to the kingdom and mission of Jesus. Christ is, in fact, supreme over all things. And if that's so, if that's true, and if we believe it's true, then we will value what Christ values. And the message of the gospel of Christ, as he preached it, was the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's now within your reach. Repent of your old life and follow the king into your new life. Paul says, pray for the doors to open. Pray that my proclamation of this gospel would be absolutely clear. And then he says to us, make the most of every opportunity. Oh, I just want to pause on that for a second. Can you think about that? 
That is an incredibly high standard. Make the most of ever. Most is an awfully absolute word. Make the most of every opportunity. Not make something of every opportunity. Not do what you can with every, but make the most of every opportunity. Paul says in Philippians 2, starting with verse 3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Oh, so many problems here. First of all, to value others above yourself. That, that is, the world can't quite handle that message. That's not how we've been taught to think. I often uh, have even heard Christians say, well, you, you, know, you have to love yourself before you can love others. Ah. Uh, we are born loving ourselves. We are born doing for me. The unnatural act is learning to do for others. The unnatural act is learning to look beyond the end of my own nose and see the others. And see those who also need what God has to offer. But then he says, now you thought Making the most of every opportunity is a high standard. Here's the highest standard. Here's the ideal. Have this same mindset that Christ has. Oh, okay then. Same mindset as Christ. Let's see. Let's take an inventory. What did Christ give up in order to come and redeem us? Oh, yeah. home with his father, perfection, glory, come be born in a stable, woohoo, come die on a cross, is there any limit to what Christ is willing to do for us, I, you know, I've been teaching this class on the early church and, and, and one of the things that we've talked about in that class is that uh, it's one of the things the early Christians did that shocked the people around them, is that people were in the habit of uh, leaving infants that they didn't want, leaving them outside to die of exposure. The Christians would go about and collect these infants up and, and raise them. And during times of plague, it was common practice for the citizens of Rome, as soon as somebody in their household became sick, in order to avoid the rest of the household becoming sick, you cast your loved ones out into the street, gave them up for dead. The Christians would come along, and they would take these neighbors into their households and attempt to nurse them back to health. Many of them die in the process of trying to nurse their neighbors back to health. 
it occurred to me as I was thinking about collecting that infant, you know, my, my wife and I are getting used to having an empty nest now. All four of our children have moved out, and it's, a, it's very, very quiet. It's been a bit of a struggle, honestly, for me. To think about the commitment that goes into raising a child from infancy to adulthood. Do you understand? Do you understand that when a Christian person in the first century goes and collects that infant off of the street, they are committing themselves to something that will burden their lives every single day and every single night for 16 or 18 or 20 years? And I look at our church today and I say, what do we have that even compares? What kind of a commitment are we ever called to make that will be a burden on our shoulders for the kingdom, for Christ, that lasts more than a few hours, much less a couple of decades? It is the ultimate commitment. Pales, perhaps, pales only in comparison to taking someone into your house who's very likely to infect you with a disease that will take your own life. What commitments do we make that are so consuming? People expect us to start a new program. They expect us to rekindle an old tradition. They Teach this message. Prioritize this ministry. Spend your resources this way. Get with the times. Or get back to the good old days, the way that it was. We've all got an idea. I know that we're supposed to be the body of Christ. Sometimes I wonder if we're not just a collection of little selves, little me's running around saying, do it this way. Make me happy. What I never hear us saying is let's be so committed to the cause of Christ. Let's be so filled with love for Jesus that we will gladly surrender everything that we know in this life. We will gladly take on any burden and shoulder it for years to come. If that's what's required, we will offer our very lives. And if it costs us our lives, it's okay because Christ is worth it, because the kingdom is worth it. I look at this community. I look at the struggles that we've had trying to reach people, trying to get our foot in the door. Paul prays for open doors. Trying to get the opportunity to share this message of hope, this message of the gospel, message of the kingdom. And I want to pull my hair out sometimes. And how come we can't make any progress? How come we can't seem to open these doors? How come? How come? The reality is, I already know the answer. It's not a question of what programs we offer. It's not that we don't want to share the gospel. It's not that we don't want other people 
to follow Jesus is that we don't want to carry the cross. We don't want to pick up the burden. We would like a Christianity that just makes things easy for us. But guess what? The world around us is not getting any easier for Christians. And there is no sign that it's going to get easier for Christians. And there's not going to be a simple solution. There is going to be an absolute surrender to Jesus, an absolute love for God that motivates us to absolutely love the world. And I watch these kids that come in and out of this fellowship, those kids that are here on Wednesday night, and I hear some of their stories, and I hear, I hear Caleb's heart for them, and I think this has been our mission now for so long. We want to reach these kids, and we want to reach their families. You know what it's going to take? We're going to have to love those kids more than we love us. We're going to have to love Jesus more than we love us. That's the answer. It's not complicated. It's not difficult. If we do that, we will spend our resources, we will spend our fellowships, we will spend our programming, we will spend ourselves differently than we do now. Paul again, Romans 12 Verse 1 says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. To offer myself, to offer all that I am, this is the only reasonable response to grace, and it is the beginning of mission. True and proper worship is a life that gives self up. And we encounter this deceptive philosophy in our culture that says your God must be terribly vain and insecure to require the constant worship of his people. Who is this God that always needs you to tell him how great he is? Here's, here's, here's a reality that you don't believe me go check it for yourself God never commands us to worship him he commands us to worship no other see worship is our natural state worship is something we're going to do one way or the other we're gonna worship something we're gonna elevate something we're gonna idolize something God says don't lift up anything to that place except me I'm the only one who deserves to be there I'm the only one that's worthy. We worship Jesus because he is worthy. And the reality is, because of our fallenness, when we're not worshiping, we are forgetting who is supreme. And that's why we worship all the time. Not because God is insecure and needs validation from us. He needs us to be validating to ourselves who's really in charge of this. We come to a place where we are worshiping ourselves because we have removed God from his rightful place and that creates a vacuum in our life. And what do we lift up? 
The truth is that humanity condemns itself to vanity and to chaos by forgetting God. The brokenness that we observe around us is one in which the truth of God has been displaced by lies and my own broken, fallen self can take that throne. Our fallen ignorance becomes our wisdom. Our feelings become our truth. Our human traditions and assumptions become our guides because we have raised an idol and we have neglected the only one who's actually worthy. But as believers... We break this chain of idolatry with this simple act of worshiping Christ alone, the only one who's worthy. And as we give our lives and our hearts to him, he will turn our lives and our hearts towards others. But we'll no longer be seeking validation from those others because all the reassurance, all the validation, all the courage that we need will come from Christ. We will find our hope and our confidence in the Lord, but He will turn our hearts to others that they may seek and know Him as well.